morning and this evening. And First Peter is written to believers who feel like foreigners in their own country and in their own culture. You ever feel like after you got saved, like you're a little bit like a foreigner in your own country and in your own culture? Because you got saved and you just don't quite think the way everybody else does now around you. And that's the kind of people First Peter is written to, newer believers especially, but believers who feel their differentness, that they don't fit in like they used to. And First Peter is written to guide them on what they should do in light of that, and in light of the fact that everything has changed for you spiritually. How are you supposed to live? And so we're going to be starting our, our uh, thought today in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. That's a transition verse from the opening verses, which are talking about the inheritance or the salvation that we have because we have been born again. And you can even see that word born again, at least in my translation, in chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been, by God's mercy, we have been born again to a living hope. We've been born again into a new family. We've got a living hope. We have an inheritance. And it's kind of interesting because um, as you read through this, it talks about, I like verse 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And it's like, okay, last week we talked about, for by grace, are ye saved? You know, past tense. Um, and First Peter is more like, okay, there's a salvation. Your salvation is still future. And you're like, what? Wait, I thought I was, I thought I was saved. You know? And it's like both are true. It's a sense in which you've been saved, you've remained saved, but there's a sense in which salvation is future. I mean, our full deliverance is still future. And we're actually looking forward to that, of being fully delivered. So as we wait for that, as we wait for um, the salvation of our soul, the full salvation, the full deliverance, as we wait for that, what are we supposed to do? Where is our focus supposed to be? And 1 Peter 1, chapter 13, begins a section then that guides us into what we should be doing as we wait. And the focus is on our relationship with our Father, our new Father. And I find it interesting because really the section we're going to be talking about, the focus is on our new our relationship to our new Father. But then by verse 22, you've got to focus more on other, other brothers and sisters in Christ and how we are uh, to communicate and relate to them. And even in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, now that's like how we conduct ourselves in a, in a lost world around us. But those two come after the first focus is how do I relate to my new father? This is our primary relationship. Now that we've been born again to a new and living hope, to an inheritance that will never fade or corrupt or disappear, our primary relationship, our primary focus is to our Father. And in the verses we're looking at, verses 13 through 16, 
The focus is on our reflecting the holiness of our new father. And my, one of my burdens is by the time we're done this morning, holiness won't just be some ethereal abstract idea or concept, but we'll see how practical this really is in everyday life. We are to reflect the holiness of our new father. And I'm using, I, I chose the word reflect because you've got in our verses, you have this idea that we are, we are reflecting something about him. Uh, even like verse 14, as obedient children. Okay, so as children who obey him, we're reflecting something about him. And then even verse 15, like the Holy One who called you be holy. And so we are, again, supposed to be reflecting what he's like. And even verse 16 says it again. And so you've got this emphasis on reflecting. And of course, the word that is repeated through here is this word holy. Verse 15, like the holy one who called you, be holy. And then verse 16, be holy for I am holy. This is the attribute of our father that we are to reflect. So reflecting the holiness of your new father. Have you ever noticed how as you get older, you look more and more like your parents? You ever notice that? Remember, uh, I don't know, a few months ago, my dad and mom came up to visit us and we were in a church where, you know, people didn't know them. And I was getting a comment like, you know, wow, you look like your dad. And I thought, I don't look anything like my dad. I mean, I've never really thought that. But it's like as I look at myself in the mirror, okay, don't comment on certain things. But as I look at myself in the mirror, it's like they're right. I'm looking more and more like my father every day. And, in fact, a few months ago, it's it's funny, we were sitting. My dad has this 1930 Model A, Ford Model A, and got it from his, I don't know, my mom's father or some. Anyway, but we were sitting. He was showing me some things in there um, because driving this thing, like, takes a manual, you know, to figure out all the different buttons you got to push and and all this. And, And so somebody was videoing us, like, in the front seat there. And later when I watched it, I couldn't believe it because we're sitting on the front of this car. We're kind of just sitting there and talking and he does a motion, uh, you know, kind of like this or something like this. And at the same time, I do the exact same motion with my hand and the video captured this. And it's like unconsciously without even, even trying, we both did something like this with our hand and in, in sync with each other. And I thought, this is crazy, you know, but it, you know, it's the result of being around a certain man or being related to a man for 50 years. I'm, I'm reflecting his likeness in so many ways. And this is what is to be true of us as, as new and as those who have a new father, we are to reflect his holiness. So looking at our passage here, working our way toward verse 14, where we 15, where you have the key command. Verse 13, therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in your spirit, and here's the, here's the key command, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so those first two uh, verbs there are just getting you ready for the main command. So get your mind ready, 
Be sober in your spirit, okay, so nothing else is controlling your thoughts. Uh, fix your hope. Put all your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, salvation is coming. Deliverance is coming. And you could almost think of it like maybe, you know, here's this, maybe this, um, you know, captain or whatever, and he's on the front lines in this battle and um, it's going to be an intense day. And his commander comes to him and says, listen, he says, no, today's going to be tough. He says, and I, you know, you're going to be on the left flank. I'm going to be on the right flank. And he's saying, no, listen, I, you, you've got to hold until I come. But here's the thing. I think it's going to take me about half a day and I'm going to be able to finish up on the right flank. But I need you to hold until midday when I come and rescue you. You think you can do that? Yes, sir. I can do that. I mean, you think about the battle and that guy for half a day, he's thinking, okay, I've got to hold out. But here's the thing. Midday, my boss, my chief is coming and he's going to deliver me. Okay, that's kind of like how we ought to feel, that kind of intensity. You know, we're in the middle of a fight. It's tough down here. It's not easy. But here's the thing. We've got, there's grace that's coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he can break those skies any moment. And the grace is here and the deliverance is here. So we got to fix all of our hope on that grace. There's no escape. There's no way out. There's no other grace. First Peter 5 will bring that up. There is no other grace. There is no other solution. You're not going to escape by escaping your new life. This is where the grace is. And there's more grace on the way. In light of that, Verse 14, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the one, holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. That's your main command, be holy in all your conduct. So I want to make uh, three points from the verses that we have uh, here uh, today. The first one's going to come from verse 14. And this is this, reflecting his holiness contrasts with what formerly shaped our conduct. Okay, reflecting his holiness contrasts with what formerly shaped our conduct. Okay, look at verse 14 again. As obedient children, there's that again, that reflective idea. Not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In the past, there was something that was shaping your conduct. And, you know, really that there's always something that is shaping or molding our behavior, right? I mean, always. You don't really get away from that. The issue is, or the question is, uh, what, what is doing the shaping? What is the influence that is molding that? And previously, we followed... If you look at verse 14, we followed our, and of course my translation has the word lusts, but that's just a word for desires. What we followed, what we followed was our desire or our desires. We were ruled by our (coughs) desires. Desire is huge. Desire is what drives our culture. Do you remember the days when you could watch YouTube videos with no commercials? Remember those days? Okay. Does that ever happen now? (laughs) Maybe if you have five views, you know, you can get by with it. 
I mean, it is unbelievable what's happened. And it's like every single clip begins with advertising. The middle part has advertising in it. And you're like, why is this? And the reason is because our world understands that everything is driven by desire. And when you appeal to people's desires, they buy. They're in. And what has struck me in Scripture, in the New Testament, is how many times it talks about desire. We are driven by our desires. I mean, here's, you know, I mean, here, here's a comment. You know, you talk to somebody maybe about some aspect of their behavior, what they're doing, you say, but I like it. That's desire. And when, when we really understand the nature of our own hearts, when I say something like, but I like it, that ought to automatically make me a little suspicious. I'm not saying, you know, everything. I'm just saying, in general, it's like, you know, my heart is so wicked and my desires are so strong that when I'm like, but I like it, you know, quit talking about that. Quit questioning me on that issue. I like it. There ought to be something that just kind of goes ding, you know, and you're like, I'm good. I should be a little suspicious if I feel so strongly about that. If there's a genuine moral question about it. I mean, today the big thing is follow your heart, right? My daughter um, sent me something that she'd seen on uh, on social media the other day. She's like, this is the kind of stuff, Dad, that's out there. And it was like this, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling thing like, you don't have to go to the best university. You just have to follow your desires to be a success. You know, and it's, and it's like, this is what's out there. I mean, this is what people believe. Follow your heart, you know, and there'll be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You know, um, you know, really, it's more like you've got to lead your heart. You've got to tell your heart what to think. And not everything we like is automatically good for us. And there are some things we don't like. Okay, like, you know, broccoli or cauliflower or asparagus or things like that, that we really ought to like. And as you get older, you start liking because you feel what you eat, right? Okay, so, I mean, you know, we've got to change our spiritual taste buds sometimes. And I'll just say, well, I like it. That's my desire. Let me just, I don't want to waste our time here. Let me just show you. I just, again, I was, even this morning, I was just struck again. Let me just read you some of the passages where it uses this word desire in the context of like the way we used to live. I was just struck by this. I'm going to try to go through the New Testament in order of the books here. But for example, John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, Jesus is saying, and you want to do the desires of your father. That's our same word in first Peter. You want to do his desires. That's how life was before salvation. Uh, Romans Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to try to move really quickly here, but I want us to see this word desire all across these pages. So the next time you're reading, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, chapter 1 of Romans, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts or desires of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God says, okay, that's the desires that you have. Okay, okay, you're going to insist on that? Okay, just go your own way. Follow your desires. Follow your heart okay. into destruction. Uh, chapter 6 of Romans, verse uh, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. That's what we obeyed. 
before our salvation. Chapter 13 of Romans and verse uh, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its desires, its lusts. There's that same word again. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verses 16 and 24. I just want us to see this word desire. It's all over the New Testament. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 and uh, verse uh, five. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. That was what was in our body and the members of our body that we have to put to death. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse five. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Literally not in the passion of desire. We don't just have desires. We have passions about those desires. Things that we feel like have to be satisfied. First uh, Timothy chapter 6. I mean, again, it's just all over. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. But I want it. Okay, the end thereof just might be destruction. Do you really want it? Where is that going to take you? What's the end game if you follow that desire? Second Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful desires. There are desires that are characteristic of young people. Chapter 3, verse 6 talks about people being led on by various desires. Chapter 4, verse 3, this is about preaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. You know, even in the spiritual or religious realm, there is a temptation to follow the desires of your flesh in the kind of preaching that you listen to. There is a preaching that indulges the flesh, that satisfies the the idols of our hearts, even in the spiritual realm. Titus chapter 2, verse 12, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires. Chapter 3, verse 3, we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, and pleasures. James 1, I'll skip that one, but back to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're looking at that passage, but even chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts. And you've got verse 18. I'm sorry, that's um, second, second Peter, let me go second Peter chapter. Uh, one verse four, for thee, for by these he has granted us to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by desire. 
or by lust. The world, there's corruption in the world. The world is like a sinking ship, and what's sinking it is their desire. Desire is bringing them down. And this is where you've got 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10. Those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust. In verse 18, speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by sensual lusts of the flesh. And in 1 John, I think we know 1 John 2, where you've got the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. These are the fundamental desires that our world pushes. And you see it in its commercials and in its advertising and its priorities and its pursuits. It's all around us. And I, I just, you know, I'm putting that out there because this, you know, verse 14, if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, reflecting his holiness contrasts with what formerly shaped our conduct. And we really ought to ask ourselves sometimes, okay, wait a minute. I mean, that's what used to shape my conduct. We ought not be surprised when things are now backwards to what they were previously. And you may feel like you got saved and you're like, man, I just feel like everything's upside down. I'm a Christian now. Why, why, is, why is everything so different? Because something else is something else is shaping your shaping your direction. You're being influenced in a completely opposite direction. And it's like a child. You know, we we were conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And you think of a child, maybe a father, and he says, okay, I want you to take a nap. And the child says, but daddy, I don't want to take a nap. There's that desire coming. I don't want to take a nap. And the dad says, hey, listen, you now we're going to be at church tonight, and you're going to be tired. I really want you to enjoy church. And really, it is best for you if you take a nap. Okay, daddy, I'll take a nap. You see that adjustment of the desire and submission as an obedient child. That's what verse 14 is calling us to. But verse 15, number two, reflecting his holiness encompasses everything you do. Reflecting his holiness encompasses everything you do. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Reflecting his holiness encompasses everything you do. This is where I want to, you know, what when we talk about holiness, what are we talking about? I feel like this is where sometimes we're just a little unclear. Like, okay, holiness is like this, you know, something out there that God is like. But I like this um, definition. Somebody said this. They said, when we say God is holy, what we mean is that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. We say that God is holy. We mean he's separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Something that is holy is set apart to a different purpose. Okay, think of this like in the Old Testament, you have holy ground. Okay, well, how can you have holy dirt? Like, I mean, that's not like dirt sins, you know, and now it doesn't sin anymore, so it's holy dirt. Or you have, you know, the, the bells of the horses are holiness. You're like, okay, is there something like sinful about horses' bells? You know, what's wrong with horses' bells? You know, well, what's the idea? The idea is, okay, that ground is now set apart for a special purpose. 
Those horses' bells are now set apart for a special purpose. Well, being holy is being set apart for a special purpose. <laughs> we are to be holy like the one who called us is holy. What is God set apart to? God is set apart to the pursuit of his own glory. That's, his, that's what he's set apart to. Everything is for his own glory because he's the only one who deserves all the glory. I think of this sometimes, you know, you watch basketball or something, you see these guys, you know, Steph Curry, these guys, they make these amazing shots. You know, it's just unbelievable to watch these guys sometimes. You're like, man, how do they do that? But, you know, some of these guys, you know, they'll make these shots and it's just like, yeah, it's all about me. You know, look, look who I am. And I think everything you are is derived. I mean, where did you get the ability to jump like that? You know, when I was in high school, it was Michael Jordan. You know, where do you get the ability to jump like that? Where do you get the ability to shoot like that? Where do you get the ability to dribble like that? That's all derived. You just received that. All that belongs, all the glory for that belongs to God. So if God's chief pursuit, again, if he is devoted to seeking his own honor, and that's what his holiness is, well, what should our holiness be? Our holiness should be devoted to seeking his honor, seeking his glory. That is part of what it means to be holy. That to be holy like my Father in heaven is holy is to be devoted to His glory. That means everything I do ought to be trying to display His uniqueness, His excellency. It's like what it says uh, in, in chapter 2 and verse 9 of 1 Peter, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That everything we do, we want to portray who our God is in his uniqueness. And again, I mean, it says in all, in all your conduct, this, you know, this includes basic things. Like me, think of this verse, whatsoever, or I'm sorry, whether therefore you what? You eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. I mean, you know, oh, man, you know, okay, I'm going to give God Sunday, I'll go to church. But eating, that's up to me. That's not how God puts it. The Bible says even in things like eating and drinking, you need to eat and drink in a way that shows off the unique excellence of your God. And that's one of the most basic things that most of us do three or four or five times a day. Do all to the glory of God. And, you know, to, to me, a passage that kind of lays this out is Ephesians chapter 4, where the kinds of, you talk about practical behavior that is pursuing God's honor and glory. And in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, it talks about how this is verse 24. It said, you've put on the new man which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness. Okay, that's, that's our word. Holiness of the truth. Okay, well, what does that look like? Like if I have been, if I've got a new, you know, a new man, I've been made a new person, created new in Christ Jesus, and I'm pursuing holiness. So I'm pursuing, I'm devoted to God's glory in every aspect of my life. What does that look like? Practically. 
And you've got things like Ephesians 4.25, speak truth, each one with his neighbor. It's okay, everybody in our culture lies, right? It's okay to tell a little lie, especially if like it involves a terrorist and you need a lie in order to save somebody. I mean, it's okay to lie. But if I'm reflecting the glory of a God who is truth and who is not able to lie, then I don't tell lies. Because it's all about honoring the God whose glory is everything. Or next verse, be angry and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. There's a way to be angry without sinning. It's not super easy. But there's a way to do it. But people around us harbor that anger. And they let it simmer indefinitely. And what this verse is saying is, if you're going to be like your Father in heaven, you don't do that. Because you've been created new in righteousness and true holiness. Uh, Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. So before salvation, you stole so you could meet your needs or meet your wants. After salvation, you don't steal anymore. Your focus is entirely different. You know your Father in heaven is going to provide your needs, and now you work so that you have something that you can even give to other people. You used to take, and now you give. You're reflecting You're reflecting the uniqueness of your father. Or you've got things like this, what no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed. Before you were saved, you tore people down with your words. Your mouth was as poisonous as a viper or a snake or a copperhead that I guess there's a lot of here in Richmond. But after salvation, to reflect the glory of your God, you use your mouth in ways that builds other people up. And lastly, in that passage, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. And I would say these two verses are suggesting that you have been genuinely wronged or hurt. Verse 32, forgiving one another. Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has wronged you. And our culture says you were wronged. You were hurt. Your rights were trespassed on. So what, what, how should you respond? Be bitter and angry and shout and clamor and speak malice against them. That's our culture. God in Christ forgave us. And if we want to reflect the glory of our God and who he is, people who have wronged us and hurt us, we forgive. That's God-like. You know, forgiveness has a cost, right? Forgiveness isn't free. I remember one day I was practicing driving with one of my kids. I won't say which one. I was practicing driving. We were backing up, and we hit somebody's mailbox. And I thought, oh, no. The mailbox was still on the pole. It was just, you know, twisted a little bit, you know, like this. So I go up to the guy's door, you know, say, hey, you know, hi there. You know, I'm your neighbor. <laughs> you know, hello. 
uh, we just hit your mailbox. And I said, so, you know, listen, I'll be glad to pay for the damage. I'm not sure how much it is. Just, just give me an estimate. I forget what I said. But he's like, he looks at it. You know, it's still there. It's just a little bit, you know, askew. <laughs> he's like, that's okay. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Like, no, really. Now he's like, no, no, listen, it's fine. Just forget about it. It's done. You know, he just forgave me for, you know, messing with his mailbox. But it was a cost to him. Forgiveness has a cost. But it's God-like to forgive. You think of what it cost God to forgive your sin. You talk about being wronged. You talk about being mistreated or hurt. When something you made, a creature you made in your image, chooses to shake his or her fist in your face, that's wrong. That's hurt. That's how, I mean, going back to First Peter, that's how practical being holy is. Because what you're doing is you're reflecting God in every area of your conduct. You don't steal. You don't lie. You don't get sinfully angry. You don't, not, you don't tear people down. You don't hold grudges against people. You forgive. And then number three, looking at verse 16 then in our passage. Number three, verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Number three, reflecting his holiness is biblically emphasized. It's biblically emphasized. You know, if God says something once, it's true, right? I mean, God doesn't have to say it 20 times. It's, oh, that must be true then. I mean, if God says it once, it's already true, right? But when God emphasizes something or when God repeats it, it's like, okay, you better highlight that in your Bible. Better get out your yellow highlighter and you mark that up. And the quotation here, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You know what book of the Bible that comes from? It comes from Leviticus, yeah. You know, Leviticus proportionately has uses the word holy more than any other book in the Bible. It's like 150, I count 152 times. 150 times. Did you know even First and Second Peter used the word holy proportionately more than any other book in the New Testament? Leviticus is number one. Second Peter is number two. First Peter is number three. I'm saying that to say this. This idea of our reflecting the holiness of our new father is not like a peripheral issue of the Christian life. This is at the core of of what it means to have a new father. That I am no longer ruled or in or try not to be try not to be ruled by my desires. But here's what's consciously guiding my actions. Whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That you're trying to display in everything you do the uniqueness of your God. That's being holy like the one who called you is holy. You were talking to one of our kids just this week, or I guess last week, this is Sunday. We were talking to one of our kids and we were talking about a conversation that they need to have with somebody. And we said, listen, as you go into this conversation, 
He said, okay, here's a couple ways that you could, you could, you, you, you could phrase this. Okay. You need to talk to this person. Here's a way you need to, you know, here's, here's a couple options for you. But we said, okay, but here's the main thing. The way you say it is key because it's not about you. What, how you say it is going to reflect on your God and how excellent and worthy your God is. And you've got to be careful in how you say it, that you do not reflect on him. You can reflect on yourself. You can reflect on your dad, but you cannot say it in a way that reflects on your father in heaven. Because whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It encompasses everything in our, in our conduct. And this emphasis is all over Scripture. And Peter is picking up on a major threat. I mean, Leviticus all, is all about, okay, people of Israel, I'm God, you're mine, do everything according to the way I tell you. So as we wrap up here, this idea of reflecting the holiness of your new father. Isn't it a a wonderful thing to reflect God's, one of God's infinite attributes? There are very few attributes that God says reflect. He doesn't say reflect my power. (laughs) He doesn't say reflect my knowledge. He says, reflect my love. And he says, reflect my holiness. And there are probably some others. You ever heard of the of the Versailles effect? This is where you take two mirrors and you put them opposite each other. And then if you put an object in between those two mirrors, those two mirrors will reflect that object to infinity. They go back and forth constantly for infinity. You think about as we try to reflect who our God is, it's like there's this infinite dimension to what we're doing because of the infiniteness of our God. And you have to want, I mean, here God is going to ultimately save us entirely from sin. And for an infinity of ages, we will reflect who God is to his great glory. And I I do want to just, you know, trying to appeal this way, I just I want to I want to end this way that, you know, it's unthinkable that we would not obey our new father. And this is what he asks us to do. I mean, think about what he's done for you. And think about how a failure really shows a lack of gratitude. He has freed you from the desires that were actually bringing you into ruin. And really, a failure to reflect his holiness shows a lack of excitement with regard to our salvation. We're not really anticipating or longing for his coming and his grace. We're too comfortable with where we are right now. But I want to leave us with this thought from Andrew Murray. He says this. He says, holiness is essential to true happiness. You know, there is no greater pathway to happiness than doing all to the glory of God. You won't find it anywhere else. Holiness is essential to true happiness. If you would have joy, the fullness of joy, an abiding joy that nothing can take away, be holy as God is holy. Holiness is blessedness. Nothing can darken and interrupt joy but sin. Whatever is our trial or temptation, the joy of Jesus, which is unspeakable, can more than compensate and outweigh. If we lose our joy, it must be 
sin. If we would live lives of joy, assuring God and men and ourselves that our Lord is everything, is more than all to us, oh, let us be holy. Holiness is essential to true happiness. So may God help us to reflect the holiness of our new Father. Let's pray. Father, take this passage and these words and haunt us with these. Lord, bring these to our mind consciously. Even this next week, as we do things, as we respond, react to others, but help us have this thought, okay, am I really seeking God's honor like he does? Lord, help us. Give us that kind of a, those kind of thought patterns. Lord, help us to see where we are still being led by our former desires. And help us really to give ourselves to trying to more and more grow into your likeness. That as the years clip away in our spiritual journey, we would more and more look like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.